Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. North Atlantic right whales are under threat of extinction. Scientists say entanglement in fishing lines is the main cause of death. But changing the way New England lobstermen fish won't be easy. Lobster fishing is is everything financially to, to me, my family. It's our entire life. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. We talk about the challenge of saving the right whales and protecting the livelihoods of lobstermen. And loons are thriving in Maine, but they're a rare sight in Massachusetts. Now a team is capturing Maine loons and taking them to their new home in Mass. We have the opportunity, this is what we like to do, is find them before sunset. Sometimes you could be searching for an hour or two before you find them. Plus, we hear from Massachusetts teens pushing lawmakers to require climate change education in K-12 schools. We don't have 20 years for students to start being educated on this. We need it now because in 20 years, who knows where Cape Cod specifically could be. It's next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, 10 public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Morgan Springer. Thanks for joining us. More than half of U.S. teens say they're extremely concerned about climate change. That's according to a 2019 survey. Locally, that concern has brought together a group of Massachusetts teenagers who want to fundamentally change the way schools teach kids about climate change. CAI's Eve Zuckoff reports. Every week, more than a dozen student activists from around Massachusetts call into a Zoom meeting. Behind them, you can catch glimpses of their lives, superhero posters, and hot pink walls. Okay, so do we want to start off today's meeting with the agenda? 17-year-old climate organizer Nico Gentile kicks off the meeting. And the sandwich teen isn't new to managing groups. Last year, Gentile helped bring together 100 students from 10 schools for the first ever Cape and Islands Youth Climate Action Summit. Through that, I was able to see how beneficial and how important learning about climate change is, mostly because it kind of sparks a fuse to create action within your community. And I asked myself the question, why don't we do this more in our own schools? In April, this question pushed Gentile to launch the Massachusetts Climate Education Organization, or MCEO. He's recruited students statewide, from urban areas to suburbs, public schools and private schools. They're now working together to convince lawmakers to pass legislation that would require all of the state's kindergartners through 12th graders to learn about climate change, climate justice, and environmental racism. I see a bit of myself in some of these high school students. There's a a real passion. This is Julian Sear, state senator for the Cape and Islands. This fall, he agreed to work with the student group to sponsor their climate education bill. What the bill will say is simply as part of a quality education in Massachusetts, you need to be learning about the climate emergency, about climate change, 
about steps you can take to mitigate your carbon footprint. More specifically, it would push climate change out of science classes. English, history, even math classes would study how low-income and minority communities often suffer the greatest effects of climate change and environmental degradation. The group is also working with the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. Gentile says the state doesn't currently provide teachers with enough materials to teach climate change. So we're actually going to be working with them to provide new and better resources for teachers to use in their own classrooms. In June, New Jersey became the first state to require schools to include climate change in every subject area K through 12. MCEO wants to make Massachusetts the second. So every week, more than a dozen members of the group divide up the work, recruiting new members, partnering with other youth climate organizations, and even training themselves on diversity and inclusion to make sure their internal processes are equitable and fair. 18-year-old Zoe Nagasawa is a member of the group. I think for a lot of people, it hasn't hit home the full impact of what climate change will do to the planet and to humanity. So they don't fully understand that the climate intersects with racial justice and with economic justice. Nagasawa is a senior at Boston Latin School and lives in Dorchester. She's noticed that many well-off students have learned about climate justice in their free time or in extracurricular activities. But that's a kind of privilege that isn't available to low-income students. It's important to elevate their voices in this fight and to do that We need to make sure that these conversations are happening in curriculum and that they're mandatory and not extracurricular so students don't have to sacrifice something else. Now, MCEO is reaching out to stakeholders like teachers unions and superintendent groups to build support. Looming over them is the fact that around 10,000 bills are filed every legislative session and only about 8% of those get signed into law. Despite the odds, Nico Gentile is determined to get it done. We don't have 20 years for students to start being educated on this. We need it now because in 20 years, who knows where Cape Cod specifically could be. We've already seen beaches be like completely eroded. And after the beaches obviously comes houses, which is horrible and crazy to think about. But we just don't have 20 years. The bill is set to be filed in January. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Eve Zuckoff. Sticking with Massachusetts for now, solar energy produces about 14% of the state's electricity. That's enough to power about half a million homes. And solar energy is growing rapidly, helping the state meet its clean energy goals. In pursuit of that, thousands of acres of Massachusetts forest and farmlands have been turned into ground-mounted solar arrays. But as WBUR's Bruce Gellerman reports... Cutting-edge technology and a little creativity are about to make it possible to harvest both sunlight and crops on the same land. A distant horn from the Grafton and Upton Railroad echoes off the rolling hills in the Blackstone Valley. Five generations ago, Paul Knowlton's family began farming here. Great-great-grandfather started in here in 1872, and we've been here ever since. Knowlton owns 300 rolling acres in Grafton and farms about 50. A gravel road past the family cemetery leads up to a field with pumpkin and squash vines and bare corn stalks still standing. This is this year's crop, yeah. I haven't even gotten to, uh, to cleaning this up and plowing under yet. How is this year's crop? 
it was it was okay considering the uh, the drought situation. We did uh, we did fair. We did fair. Fickle weather and fluctuating prices make farming a risky business. So five years ago, Paul Knowlton put in a new cash crop, solar energy. He turned 19 acres into two solar energy fields. Doing this soil was very, very beneficial because in the wintertime, there is no revenue for a farm. It's a tough game. Knowlton's 18,000 solar panels put out enough clean, renewable energy to power nearly 1,200 homes. Producing clean energy, there was no downside in my mind. It was a go. Now Paul Knowlton wants to up his production of solar power on his farm, expanding it to another 14 acres, but this time using a different technology. Ian Ward, a solar expert and land planner, says it's called agrivoltaic, or dual-use solar. Dual-use is brand new. We're changing the paradigm on how solar interacts with the land. Ward helped develop the plan for the new solar arrays on the Knowlton farm. He says the panels will be built at least eight feet off the ground, allowing machines to operate and plants to grow underneath. Pioneering ag in New England. No one has really done dual use like we're doing it here in Massachusetts. We're really setting a benchmark for the rest of the country to follow. How could that be? I mean, we're not Iowa, we're not Wisconsin, we're, we're not Nebraska. How could it be Massachusetts? Because Massachusetts had the cutting edge of renewable policy since the start. Twelve years ago, the state was one of the first to set goals for reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And two years ago, Massachusetts instituted the SMART program, a subsidy to expand conventional solar and jumpstart dual use. Drew Pearson is head of sustainability with Blue Wave Solar, the Boston-based company that's building the new arrays on the Knowlton Farm. That subsidy is key to unlocking all of the innovation on both sides of the solar and agricultural equation that's, that's needed to make this business model work. This is an experimental approach. Heidi Ricci is policy director with Mass Audubon, which supports rapid solar development but is critical of where panels have been placed. In a recent study, the organization found that 6,000 acres of Massachusetts farmland and forests have been lost to conventional solar development and that meeting the state's renewable energy targets could require clearing an additional 150,000 acres. Ricci says there are better places to put solar panels, the roofs of parking lots and shopping malls. She's cautious and curious about the experimental dual-use solar farm technology. It's a good idea to try it, to pilot it, to study it, and then to potentially ramp it up when we know that the methods are successful. Until a decade ago, there was little research into growing crops under solar panels. Then scientists at UMass Amherst began investigating which crops might thrive in the shade and which wouldn't. Gerald Polano is an alternative energy specialist with Massachusetts Department of Agricultural Resources. Ones that have a hard time working well, watermelon, eggplant, certain varieties of peppers, corn, uh, really do require a high percentage of sunlight. Uh, so we're not certain any of those will be successful. Many leafy vegetables grow well in the shade. Lettuce, spinach, kale, broccoli, and Brussels sprouts. The solar panels that will be installed on the Knowlton Farm aren't conventional. They're an innovative, translucent design, says developer Drew Pearson. Bifacial panels capture the sunlight that is reflected back off the ground, so they're more efficient. And when you raise them high up off the ground you can maximize the amount of reflected sunlight that they absorb. UMass and state researchers will be closely monitoring the first use of dual solar here, as more farms are approved for subsidies. 
Massachusetts Alternative Energy Specialist Gerald Polano. So we're looking at starting up 18, 19 projects, we hope, through the winter into next spring and ready for the upcoming farm season. Among the planned projects, solar panels over cranberry bogs, harvesting the sun's energy and the state's number one ag product. Again, Drew Pearson with developer Blue Wave Solar. This truly is going to be the future, agriculture and solar together, because it just makes sense. We're going to build it. It's going to be a beautiful thing. Grafton farmer Paul Knowlton has nine children. He wants the farm to stay in the family. I have two that are interested, and we're going to keep it for the next generation to enjoy. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Bruce Kellerman. We're planning a special in January that looks at the threat of climate change in New England and how the incoming Biden administration could affect climate action here. For that show, we want to hear from you. How has climate change affected your life? Leave a comment at 860-275-7595. Again, 860-275-7595. Or you can email us at next at ctpublic.org. One more time, that's next at ctpublic.org. And thank you. You can no longer put food scraps into landfills in Vermont. That law went into effect July 1st. Since then, Tom Roberts has been taking his food scraps to his local transfer station. But he's not happy about it. I think it's a big pain in the neck. I think it's a a foolish law. Roberts says his compost creates a stinking mess at home. And he thinks this stuff belongs in the landfill. My wife hates it more than me. (laughs) So, you know, it's, it's not a good thing. But it's the law in Vermont, and so when Saturday rolls around, Roberts drives over with his plastic tub filled with food scraps, and he dumps them into one of the bins there. As people in the Green Mountain State get on board with this new system, transfer stations are struggling to keep up, and new businesses are popping up to haul the household food scraps to composting facilities. Vermont Public Radio's Liam Elder Connors went with one of those compost haulers this fall. Not everyone wants to drive to a transfer station each week to drop off compost. And with many larger waste haulers in the state like Casella and Myers offering limited food scrap pickup, smaller operations have filled the gap. Kelly says the number of food scrap haulers in the state has doubled since 2012 to about 30. A surprising number are independent, sole proprietor food scrap haulers. Somebody who starts out with a pickup truck or a van or even a station wagon, and starts a business out of it. Isaac Colby is one of those callers. It's a ripe one. Yep. <laughs> you actually, I, maybe this is just me. At some points, I even kind of think it smells good. In the same way that, like, French cooking, you have your mirepoix of, like, carrots and celery and onions, and, like, it's just a slightly rank mirepoix. It's okay. It smells pretty good. The 29-year-old South Burlington resident started his one-man operation, Some Dudes Compost Company, a little over a year ago, using his old Ford Focus sedan. But with the increase in demand, he's upgraded to a Toyota Tacoma pickup truck. On a recent weekday morning, Colby was making the rounds in Essex. The actual job is pretty repetitive. Stop at each house with a white five-gallon bucket, dump the bucket into one of the four bins in the back of the pickup truck, and repeat. Sometimes you can just pull the liner out, 
huck it into the bin and you're done. Other times the liner's a little ripped or it's a little bit disintegrated and you have to heave the whole bucket. And it's literally a matter of saving like five seconds, but it's five seconds times a hundred, which ends up being a substantial amount of time in a day. Colby's not exaggerating. There are 100 houses on his route this morning. That's a huge increase from where he was even at the beginning of this year. He says before July 1st, he was picking up food scraps at a dozen or so houses. Now he's at capacity and not taking new customers. They just all changed (laughs) overnight. Currently I service 380 people in my little Tacoma. (laughs) Colby says the demand has already led him to change from offering weekly pickup to service every other week. Colby says he'll charge people $15 a month plus another 5 bucks if they want an extra 5-gallon bucket. Other independent haulers have had similar experiences. Ellen Ross and her partner Will McDonald realized that a lot of their neighbors in Duxbury needed somebody to pick up their food scraps. We were like joking, like, we could do that. We have a pickup truck, like, what, we have 12, 15 neighbors that might be interested. In July, the two started Roots Compost as a side hustle. Ross is a wedding photographer and McDonald is a school counselor. But like Colby, the pair found a lot of demand for their service. Roots Compost now has 250 clients spanning from Stowe to Jericho, and they move nearly a ton of food scraps each week. Never in my life did I think that I would be surrounded by like 250 buckets. But yeah, so we um, have already expanded with another truck and we've hired somebody, so it's been pretty awesome. The food scrap ban has only been in effect since July, and the surge in consumer demand for services like Roots Compost might wane as time goes on. For now, there's still a lot of people looking for pickup. Cameron Scott, the owner of No Waste Compost in Burlington, says he still gets about three new customers a day. Scott started No Waste three years ago when he was 23. He now employs three people full-time and two part-time and has three trucks. Last month, we moved over 37 tons of compostable waste. So in Chinton County, I believe we are moving the largest amount of household food waste specifically. Scott says he sees potential for more growth. He says he's interested in acquiring some of the smaller businesses that have sprung up in recent months. Our goal is to provide the lowest rate. So we're also interested in buying out some of those other haulers, of course, if, if they want to. Um, in rural Vermont, it's, it's really hard to expand these services. I know firsthand. And as we can see from the multi-million dollar larger waste management companies, they don't have an interest in this. Ross, one of the owners of Roots Compost, says she's glad to be doing something community-oriented. Not just be this like faceless organization that's picking up your unchewed spaghetti. Ross says she and her partner aren't planning to quit their day jobs to haul food scraps full-time, but for now, they're enjoying growing the business. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Liam Elder Connors. VPR's Howard Weiss-Tisman helped report that story. Coming up, North Atlantic right whales are among the most endangered species. They're at risk of extinction. What's being proposed to protect them and how that could impact thousands of lobstermen in New England. Plus, speeding up the repopulation of loons in Massachusetts by capturing chicks in Maine. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, 
supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. Welcome back. I'm Morgan Springer. There's this tension between protecting the environment, water, air, plants, and animal species, and protecting people's livelihoods. That tension is on full display in the new documentary, Entangled. The documentary is about one of the world's most endangered species, the North Atlantic right whale, and the lobster industry, which is the most valuable fishery in North America. Joining us now to talk about it is David Abel, one of the filmmakers and an environment reporter at the Boston Globe. David, welcome back to Next. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So there are about 400 North Atlantic right whales left in existence right now. And in recent years, the majority of these whales that die, die because of entanglement in lobster fishing lines. Take us to that scene. How exactly does this happen? Sure. Uh, Let me just say that just in the last few weeks, scientists released a new estimate for the population. This year, they estimated the population to be closer to 356. But to answer your question directly about the primary cause of right whale mortality has been these things called vertical buoy lines. And there are millions of these lines in the Gulf of Maine. They're the ropes that extend from the surface where there are buoys and they connect to lobster traps or other kinds of crab pots at the sea floor. And it's these lines that have entangled at least 85% of existing right whales and has killed a disproportionate number of them. There are other causes of deaths for right whales, including ship strikes, but this has been the primary cause. Why should people care if these whales live or die or go or become extinct these are incredibly majestic beautiful creatures in their own right we should want a great diversity of species on our planet and then of course there's the more practical way to answer the question in that whales play a vital role in the ecosystem and they also are responsible for taking up a good amount of the carbon in our oceans that are causing our oceans to warm and become more acidic. And they play a a crucial role, honestly, in dealing with our increasing amount of climate emissions and climate change. But I think that we should be looking at the bigger picture and that the whales are in some ways a poster child for a larger problem that we have. And And that is one of the things that fueled the making of this film. Last year, the United Nations released a report estimating that the planet is poised to lose about a million species by the end of this century. And as one person in the film says, if we can't protect a whale from extinction, what else can we protect? So... I want to switch gears, though, to the lobster fishermen, because we hear how the protection of these whales could literally mean thousands of working class families losing their incomes in places like Maine and Massachusetts. And David, as I was watching this film, I kind of felt like I was seeing this class divide taking place where the people who are fighting for and actually crying real tears for these whales appear to have very little connection to the lobstering industry 
and frankly don't seem that upset or moved by the thought of families losing their livelihood. Do you think that's accurate? Do you see a class divide and a disconnect there? Well, I don't know about it being a class divide as much as it being a lifestyle divide. And look, this film is not just a film about whales. It's a film about our struggle in society through all of our institutions from the federal level to the state level, from the industry side, from the scientist side. How do we deal with this problem, this loss of our biodiversity, of an iconic species in our region, while at the same time also valuing and trying to protect a similarly vital institution, an iconic way of life, and that is lobster fishing in New England and particularly in Maine. And I certainly don't come at this film saying we should be shutting down the lobster industry. I think we need to find a way for the lobster industry, which is the lifeblood of the economy in Maine and in other parts of New England. We want this fishery to remain vital, but we need to find a way for the industry to coexist better with the right whales. And unfortunately, there is an extinction crisis for the right whale. And there needs to be some changes to try to protect the livelihoods of fishermen and also the existence of this species. Well, yeah, let's just talk about possible solutions, because you mentioned you know, not wanting to have to shut down lobstering, which state officials in Massachusetts have done numerous times already in Cape Cod. Another solution that the documentary addresses is this ropeless lobster trap technology, where you basically remote control a lobster trap up to the surface without a rope. But honestly, my understanding is that technology seems pretty far off and expensive. Is there a solution that doesn't significantly hurt the lobstering industry and that is realistic right now? Closures are one blunt method of trying to reduce the likelihood of whales dying through entanglements in fishing gear. But that blunt instrument is the last resort. There have been efforts by lobstermen here to try to reduce the strength of their rope, and they have put these things called sleeves in their rope, which ideally breaks at a certain amount of pressure. So there are other measures that can be envisioned, but the real holy grail, as you mentioned, the real hope is that this new technology, which has advanced quite significantly in recent years, will be able to be deployed throughout the 5,000 or so lobster fishing vessels in the region. And the technology works. It just is very expensive at the moment. And it seems to me and to a lot of other experts that for ropeless fishing gear to actually make a difference uh, and be something that could be deployed on a large scale, you would need a federal subsidy to defray the costs, which at this point is too expensive for any one fisherman to be able to afford. Mm -hmm. David Abel is one of the filmmakers behind the new documentary Entangled about this conflict between right whale conservation and the lobster industry. He's also an environment reporter at the Boston Globe. David, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. 
Now we're going to hear from a lobsterman in Maine about this conflict. John Druin lives and fishes out of Cutler, which is near the Canadian border. John, thanks for coming on next. My pleasure. So, John, can you just tell me when you started lobster fishing in Cutler and what it was like for you? So I, I started lobster fishing in 1979. Boy, long time ago. I was 14. I actually just moved to Maine. I, I'm originally from Connecticut. We came up here and, and we scrounged up some traps from local fishermen. And I loved it. I just absolutely loved it. Being on the water and being on a boat just absolutely amazed me. So that's what I chose to do. And here we are now, what, 42 years later and uh, still doing it. Yeah. What does lobstering mean for you now for your livelihood? Oh, everything. I mean, it's always been everything for me. My wife, when when we met, of course, I would tell her about my fishing and everything I did. And, and well, what's your hobbies? Um, I go down to my boat and I work on my boat. I do this. I do that. My My hobby is my work. Those people that say, you know, get a job and love what you're doing and you'll never work a day in your life and all those types of things. That's where I'm at. Yeah. So my life revolves around fishing, around my boat. So if you and your family had to reduce the number of lines and the number of traps you had in the ocean to protect the right whale, or if you were shut down for portions of the season, what would you do? If, if, we, if we're yes. shut down, uh, <laughs> I would potentially, you know, could be financially ruined. Reducing traps, quite honestly, I don't have a problem reducing traps, even though I, I have young sons that... They're 23, 24 years old, and, and they want to fish hard. But I am a believer that we can catch just as much with fewer traps. I was looking at the known right whale deaths that occurred between 2017 and 2020. This was on the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's website. And most of those deaths have been in Canada. Some of them have been in Massachusetts and Georgia. None that I could see that were documented have been in Maine. Correct. None whatsoever. So you're being asked to potentially make massive adjustments for something that you've never seen. Yeah, I don't think we're being asked. I think we're being told that we are going to be making massive adjustments for something that, that I've never seen. Correct. Yes. Yeah. So it feels like you're being told and, and that feels like it's a tangible thing that's just coming. It's inevitable. Yep. Oh, yes. Being on, on the Department of Marine Resources, Lobster Advisory Council, back when, before all this, when we could meet, you know, this was the crux of, of the meetings and everything, discussing what is the industry going to do? How can we take and be more whale friendly and everything? Because we're basically being bullied by the environmentalists that a rope is, has been seen on a, on a whale and you main fishermen, because you have the most amount of traps, you're the, the cause of it. According to the environmentalists and the scientists, as the whale is feeding, its mouth is open and, and the poor thing is catching your buoys in its mouth and it's bailing and then it gets wrapped up in the rope and you're killing it. So we put on these breakaways that they would be very easily to break off. We didn't like it at the time because we were fearful that they're just going to break off sitting in the water. But yeah, we learned, we adapted. Then they decide the whale doesn't feed on top of the water. The whale swims down to the bottom and then comes up from the bottom. So your floating rope is catching the whale and, and, they, and then they get tangled up in your traps. And, and oh, you're, you're killing the poor whales. Okay, so yeah, well, we don't believe that. But 
especially on this end of the coast with the amount of tide that we have, our rope does not float up because the tide is pulling it sideways. So, but we'll change our rope. We'll put rope that lays flat on the bottom. It does not float. It is sinking rope. So there, but we do care. We, we are trying, even though we don't believe we're the, the, the culprit, we don't believe we're the problem. We are trying to work with you and, and try to protect the whale just as, as you folks are. So we've done these things. I feel like you know, though, you've said that you know something's coming. You're going to be told to do something. So with that in mind, like, what can you stomach? Basically what the state, at least on the western half of Zone A, the state's plan, which would be a minimum of an eight-trap trawl, so eight traps on one single vertical line to a buoy outside of three miles, and then it that goes to 12 miles, and then from 12 miles out, it goes to 25 traps um, on a single buoy. So as you say, stomach, which is a good word, yes, not that we want to do it, but this is, is something that we says, okay, we, we, can, we can probably live with this. Well, John, I want to thank you so much for talking to me. I, I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Anytime. John Druin is a lobsterman in Cutler, Maine. The call of a loon is a familiar sound in Maine, where the population is strong and healthy. But it's a sound people in Massachusetts don't hear very often. Between hunting and shoreline development, loons were eradicated from southern New England in the late 1800s. They've been slow to return, though now an ambitious project is trying to jumpstart the process and help restore this beloved species by capturing young chicks in Maine, bringing them south, and convincing them that Massachusetts is their new home. From WBUR and Maine Public Radio, Miriam Wasser and Susan Sharon have this story. On a small lake in Raymond, Maine, cabin lights are blinking on, and the smell of dinnertime barbecue is in the air. As if on cue, a pair of loons announce their presence to an approaching motorboat. We have the opportunity, this is what we like to do, is find them before sunset. Sometimes you could be searching for an hour or two before you find them. Lucas Savoy, a wildlife biologist with the nonprofit Biodiversity Research Institute, has piloted the boat to the north end of the lake. He and several volunteers have come in search of a six-week-old loon chick. We'd only take one chick from a two-chick brood. If there was a single brood, we wouldn't, we wouldn't take that, because that, that would be more disruptive to a parent or a loon pair if they lost all of their chicks. For non-scientists, there's more than a twinge of sadness at separating loon families. But Savoy and others at the Institute are focused on the greater goal, using reparation funds from a 2003 oil spill to restore loons to their historic range. Capturing them is no easy feat. Loons are elusive. They have excellent vision, which is why the team likes to locate the parents and the chick before the sun goes down, maintain a little bit of distance, and then move in quietly once it gets dark. Using a spotlight, one person tries to disorient the birds while another maneuvers a long-handled net. With a quick scoop, a chick is in the boat and flailing about. Not yet sprouting the distinctive black and white plumage of its parents, it's about the size of a large duck. Once on shore, it's examined by a vet, put in a special container, and driven south in an air-conditioned truck. 
After crossing two state lines, the young loon ends up at the Assawampsit Pond Complex, a series of freshwater reservoirs and ponds in Lakeville, Massachusetts. And on a crisp autumn morning, Dave Evers, the executive director of the Biodiversity Research Institute and one of the country's leading loon experts, walks through an overgrown path in the woods to a picturesque shoreline on one of the lakes. Here was a step over here. About 20 feet from the edge of the water are a series of partially submerged pens. Under the care of biologists, the chicks from Maine live in these pens until they're about 10 weeks old and showing signs that they're ready to fly. They get to that point where they want to fledge, they want to start testing their wings. Ever says that keeping the birds penned until they're ready to fly is the key to the whole loon restoration project. When they leave the lakes here, they probably look down, this is where I'm at, and that's what gets imprinted on their brains. Like, this is the place to come back. This is home. Loons are a highly territorial bird, and after spending the winter on the ocean, they return to the same freshwater lake or pond every spring. They're really slow to colonize new areas, even if there's prime breeding habitat not too far away. It would take decades, I think, for loons to get here on their own, so this is a way to jumpstart this population. But before they can be set free, the chicks have to survive in captivity. And as Evers often says, there's a reason you don't see loons in a zoo. Raising young loons has involved a lot of trial and error. Take feeding. At first, the team struggled just to get the birds to eat. They'd put live fish into the pen, but the loons wouldn't die for them. Then they realized that in the wild, when adult loons bring their chicks fish, they slap them across the surface of the water to signal that it's time to eat. By pouring fish through a PVC pipe into the pen, the team found that they could mimic the slapping sound. This is the first time a project like this has been attempted with loons, and it's already showing signs of success. Several birds that were translocated a few years ago have returned to Massachusetts. And this summer, one of them had a chick on a lake in Fall River. Massachusetts is particularly well set up for an expanding loon population. This is Andrew Vitz, the Massachusetts state ornithologist. He's excited about the prospect of restoring a native species like loons, in part, he says, because the birds have the potential to help us restore local ecosystems. With their voracious appetite for fish, loons are a great indicator of environmental toxins like lead and mercury. And with their distinct calls, striking features, and charismatic personality, they really draw people in. They're like eagles. People really are pulled to them, and they want to help, and it's a great way to motivate conservation action. Just after sunrise on a foggy November morning, biologist Lucas Savoy wades into a lake, cradling one of the captive chicks. He hands the bird to a local volunteer who places it in the water. She lets go, and the loon begins to swim away. It feels really good to let them go and to know that they have a much bigger area now here. This chick will hang out here for a few more weeks, feeding and perfecting its flying skills, before heading to the ocean for the winter. And if everything goes according to plan, she will return to this spot in a couple of years to have chicks of her own. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Miriam Wasser in Massachusetts. And I'm Susan Sharon in Maine. There was recently a pretty cool bird sighting in Massachusetts. CAI's Mark Faraday reported on it. What happened was, for the first time in more than 20 years, a birder spotted an ancient merlet by the shore near Provincetown, Cape Cod. The birder took off running down the beach to tell other birders nearby about the merlet. Peter Flood got to see it. That was a life bird for me. Um, pretty excited to see that bird, and we made a pretty 
pretty good run down the beach to uh, catch up to it. These penguins of the north are usually seen in the North Pacific. After the break, juggling school and work as a college freshman during the pandemic. Plus, the power and burden of the phrase black girl magic. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. Okay, we're back. This fall, thousands of high school graduates, especially those from low-income households, chose to delay their freshman year as they dealt with lost work or family illness due to the pandemic. WBUR's Max Larkin brings us the story of one student who made the leap to college anyway. This is the middle of Josh Knight's daily commute, an orange line car on his way to work. He's got his ear pods in, straining to listen and speak so, over the rattle. Though I do think the film focused a little bit, I'm sorry I'm on the train, so forgive me if I'm not, you can't hear me, but I, I do think that it's also the middle of class. As the subway passes under Chinatown, Knight is attending a first-year honors seminar at Framingham State University, over Zoom, on his phone. Contributing to class discussion takes some planning. I try to talk in like the, the lulls, like this, so I'd like to shoot my point in and stop. Right? It's just like, this thing is ridiculous. As Knight grips his phone, you can't help but notice his class ring with a glinting blue stone. He wears it every day. It's, it's 23 to graduate from high school, but it's one of my proudest accomplishments because I didn't, have to, I didn't go through what everybody else went to the graduate high school. Knight is part of the sizable minority of college students who balance full-time work with a near-full course load. But you might wonder, why now? Why not postpone college this year like thousands of other students did? Why battle the MBTA for his participation grade? For Knight, it comes back to that ring. Like I just thought the other day I was feeling a little doubtful about what I could or couldn't do, and I looked at this and I'm like, this is proof that you, like I said, I'm a hard worker and I'm willing to do whatever it takes, as long as it takes to get where I want to go. The pandemic struck in the middle of Knight's final semester in high school. He took his final exams on a springtime furlough from the Charlestown YMCA, where he's the associate aquatics director. Meanwhile, the hotel that his family had called home for years closed in March in response to the virus. Through a mask, Josh's mom, Florence, explains how that sent the family into Boston's pricey market of short-term rentals. We moved seven times in the middle of COVID. Oh, yes, seven times. They relied on a combination of Josh's pay and, during the furlough, his boosted unemployment checks. In September, the family finally found an affordable apartment at the edge of Franklin Park, with room enough for five, Josh, his parents, and his niece and nephew. As Florence holds baby Kimora on the sofa, the living room feels like a refuge, especially after a dark decade for the family, one that saw stable housing hard to come by and the deaths of three of Josh's half-brothers, 
The Knights are devout Christians, and their faith tends to brighten even those losses. But clearly, Florence also believes in her son. He's suffered a lot of loss and displacement and kept his strength and focus to have gone through so much that he has gone through. I'll just stop there. Knight hugs his mom on the way out the door, but he doesn't say much. He does know that these next few years will be a struggle. While many of his close friends from the Boys and Girls Club started college, he can only think of one that finished. And with YMCA revenue down, he's just learned he'll face a second furlough in December. He's applying for work at another branch. Before his shift starts at the pool, Knight says he does feel doubts sometimes. But they're always local and practical. The big questions, housing, safety, survival for his family, somehow he isn't as worried about those. Regardless, I don't really feel too much stress in that aspect anymore. My stress may come from other things, like, damn, I have to do this paper, which is, like, pretty weird seeing that I'm, like, not stressing about home, but, like, I'm stressing about paper a little bit, but it's like... I know it's going to be okay, no matter what happens. Josh Knight may be unusually driven, maybe unusually self-conscious, but his circumstances aren't exactly unusual in higher education today. Thousands like him across the state and the country are still starting their path toward a degree this fall, with faith in themselves and in spite of everything else. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Max Larkin. In the past few years, the phrase black girl magic has become its own movement, with songs written about it and famous women like Michelle Obama using the hashtag on social media. But for Kayla Lager-Lewis, the message of empowerment at one point became a burden. Here's the University of Rhode Island student reflecting on the phrase and what it's meant to her following a period of burnout her sophomore year. As a kid growing up in Westchester, New York, my mom tried to introduce me to as many black women role models as possible. When I was eight, Michelle Obama became our first lady. Before knowing the phrase, watching her speak, I knew what black girl magic was. Black girl magic is not just a hashtag, but a movement. Founded and popularized by social media influencer Kashawn Thompson in 2013 to celebrate black women and all of their accomplishments. It's a symbol of female excellence and pride, a celebration of a group of people who felt like they hadn't been celebrated enough and the hashtag blew up on social media. Black girl magic. It's the swag that we have. Hashtag black girl magic. Hashtag black girl magic. Hey, hi now. Hey. embodies black girl magic. I heard the phrase all the time, and for a while, it was inspiring, almost like a mantra. At some point, black girl magic had changed from a celebration to an expectation, and I was meeting that expectation. In my first year at the University of Rhode Island, I got nearly straight A's. I joined my school newspaper, a bunch of other campus organizations, and worked on an initiative to give inner-city high schoolers a glimpse into the college experience. But my magic soon began to feel like it was fading. I was burning out. Things that I considered easy now felt hard. I would have to force myself to get out of bed for class most days. I had to take more breaks while studying and doing homework. I didn't have the motivation to do anything. I was struggling. But black girls are supposed to be magical. Michelle Obama, Serena Williams, Beyonce, Oprah, these women don't burn out. It felt like black girl magic was something that was being passed down through generations of accomplished black women. I just couldn't understand how it applied to me. When did you realize that I was feeling mediocre? 
I asked my mom, Marie, this question as I struggled to figure out my place as a black woman. Was my black girl magic fading? I know that you were feeling overwhelmed, but no, I didn't realize you were struggling um, with feeling that you were mediocre because you definitely were not. It was exactly what I needed to hear after years of just hearing, you have to work twice as hard to be just as good. I was at a point where my hard work seemed pointless. I needed a change, and I got it, at a campus event one Saturday morning, the sophomore breakthrough experience, where we each took a marker and wrote our insecurities on a piece of wood, and then we physically broke through them to signify a new beginning. My board was completely covered in purple ink. Unmotivated, trying too hard, overthinker, low self-esteem, lazy. I stood up in front of my peers ready to strike the middle of the board with my palm. I tried three times, but nothing happened. I couldn't do it. I was in my head, and I needed to get out of it. So I focused on one word in the middle of the board. Unworthy. I hit the board and it broke. And once it did, I felt so proud and so silly. I realized that maybe I'm the type of person who does try too hard like I'd written on my board of labels. I need to let myself not always be so perfect. I just need to let go of the pressure and succeed in a way that felt good to me. It's okay to momentarily fail or feel like a failure. There will always be another breakthrough waiting. I recently texted my mom to ask what black girl magic meant to her. She didn't even mention accomplishments or titles or hard work like I thought she would. Black girl magic to me is the undeniable energy that black females exude, my mom answered. No matter what the world has tried to throw at us, we rule. It took burning out, speaking to her, and examining my entire relationship with the phrase to realize I had had it all wrong. I was trying to prove my magic when it was already there. In my energy, in my melanin, in me simply being a black girl. Black girl magic. Watch out coming she in traffic. That was Kayla Lager-Lewis, a student at the University of Rhode Island. Her piece was produced in collaboration with The Public's Radio. And that's our show this week. You can find past episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. Next is produced by me, Morgan Springer, and Lily Tyson. Vanessa De La Torre is our executive editor. The executive producer is Katie Tolarski. The music you hear on Next is by musicians in New England. If you want to know who you heard today, visit our show page at nextnewengland.org. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Media, CAI, WBUR, WSHU, GBH, and the Public's Radio. 